Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 3, Too Hot for Catch. Way back at the beginning of the summer, I had checked out a book on watercolor painting from the Waverly Public Library, an astonishing find given that its entire collection was housed in one small room of the community center and amounted to about a hundred books total. Half of them were out-of-date encyclopedias, and there were quite a few old catalogs and nature magazines, nowhere near enough to organize into any meaningful sections. The whole dusty pile had been donated by Berner Adams Scrivener, an eccentric old man who lived with three vicious poodles in his hoary, peeling, Queen Anne-style house that towered over the mid-century ranch homes by the Methodist church like a haunted cartoon. Old Berner had donated the books and then declared himself the librarian, but the city council ran him out after he insisted on bringing his terrible dogs with him every day a fracas that resulted in precisely nobody ever being on duty in the library. If you wanted a book, you just walked in and took it, no due date or anything. Just bring it back whenever you wanted to, I guess. I had been meaning to return the compendium of watercolor techniques after a couple of weeks, but I got so absorbed into the pictures that I kept forgetting. I had been painting a lot since school let out. Every now and then I would get these big ideas, undertakings so enormous in scope that they demanded far more than the available time and resources, and always required my mother's help to execute, which she dutifully did no matter what it was. For example, my big ideas ensured that she spent much of my grade school years typing out manuscripts of plays I had written, and sewing together elaborate costumes for them, many of which I ended up wearing in public, making what should have been simple trips to the grocery store almost unbearable gauntlets of endurance and patience. Sometimes my mom referred to my big ideas as harebrained, or cockamamie, or sometimes even schemes, which gave me a sort of private little pleasure because it made me feel like I was a mad scientist cooking up the sort of chaotic brilliance in my room that would subdue the world, elevating me to the kind of immortal status where they'd hang my photo up in the high school on their wall of champions, which in my lifetime had only ever had one member a wrestler from the late 1950s who looked like all he wanted to do was punch you in the face right through the picture. A real man. But my biggest schemes were orchestrated for the benefit of one man, my father, who I'd been trying to get close to since I was little, but who always seemed uninterested, unimpressed, unmoved by whatever I would rush to show him. For as much as he loved that story of the early emergence of my so-called artistic perfection, Nothing cool I did after the age of two seemed to turn his head. Whenever I showed him a drawing or something I'd written, he'd just silently nod if he looked up from his drafting table at all. 
dressing up like Charlton Heston as Moses when I was five and shouting the Ten Commandments from the top of the stairs before hurling two ceramic dishes down into the living room did nothing. Starting my own detective agency in the second grade, taking his fingerprints, and then putting him under surveillance for a whole month only annoyed him and caused him to cut himself shaving when he noticed me in the mirror watching him from behind the shower curtain. Pretending I was an army ranger facing panzer tanks in our front yard and attacking him head-on with my wooden rifle while he was trying to mow made him livid and got me banned from being outside whenever he was on the tractor. The more I tried to excite him with my wondrous feats of creative daring, the more he seemed to recoil and recede into a darkening, impenetrable cloud. That storm had been brewing for a while. There was a dangerous season in the late 1970s where my dad's outlaw adultery and careless cruelty had almost imploded our family. My mom caustically referred to it as his urban cowboy phase, lasting roughly from the time my brother Patrick was born in September 1977 to when we moved to the farm right before I started kindergarten in August 1980. During that period, my dad grew his inky black hair down to his shoulders, sported a thick Thurman Munson mustache, and wore a fog hat t-shirt under western flannels with the sleeves rolled up and ratty flared jeans, pretty much looking at all times like he just got kicked out of the Eagles. To hear my mother tell it, my parents' marriage had sort of limped along through the first seven years, with only sporadic dickwad behavior from my dad. But when Patrick came along, he really hit a wall, caught a glimpse of Glenn Fry singing Desperado on TV, bought a bunch of Oak Ridge Boys albums, decided it was time for some kick-ass sideburns, and completely chucked his architectural aspirations to launch a renegade construction company that kept him on the road for stretches long enough to accumulate rock star-like sexual conquests, cementing his personal credo of, nobody owns me. He even used to wear a shirt on site that said Julius Destruction Company. I guess the joke was that he was a guy who was supposed to be building something, but he was really destroying it, which wasn't far off from the truth. My mom told me that over the dark and rainy summer she was pregnant with Patrick, I had developed the habit of dressing like my dad. At that point, he was basically AWOL, building grain elevators in Minnesota for months at a time, not even calling to check in on her. The story goes that for days on end, I would wear the toddler version of my dad's daily attire, a white t-shirt with my jeans cinched up around my waist as tight as I could get them, and a flannel shirt worn open. My dad wore a pair of leather boots that were half cowboy and half dock worker and always looked like trouble. I wore a pair of rubber boots that had painted-on western embroidery with pink fur on the inside that made my feet sweat and my ankles itch. I'm not sure you were consciously thinking it, my mom would always say about this, but you might have sensed I needed somebody to help me and watch over me, and that since your dad wasn't around, you would be the dad for a while. And maybe that was true. But the story also sounded to me like maybe it was one of my very first big ideas. Maybe I thought if I dressed like my dad, he would come back. Maybe in my little boy conception of things, I thought he would look at me and see how much I missed him, and how much our family needed him, that he could be shaken awake and lured back by my innocent tribute. 
My dad wears these shirts and these boots. If I wear them, he will see that we belong together. We ended up living out on the farm as part of what my dad called the experiment, his term for my mom and him giving it one more try. His big idea was to restore the remote property's crumbling mansion to the pinnacle of its mid-1870s glory, and he designed and slapped together a small lofted cottage for us to live in while that happened. Except that it never happened. Once he had hidden us deep in the dust and fields of the country, he went back to being an architect again, this time for a big firm in Omaha that had him spending every waking hour designing hospitals and flying all over the country supervising their construction. He traded his country rock wardrobe for expensive sport coats and ties, erasing his fugitive days with a few trips to Jerry Ryan's Big and Tall and making it impossible for me to emulate his style. My parents' fresh start ended up being my dad jetting from city to city, project to project, and girlfriend to girlfriend, missing our games and our plays, while my mom used her meager teaching and freelance writing money to feed us, clothe us, get us swimming and piano lessons, and basically make us and anybody we might encounter in town feel like we were just a normal family. Dad was usually home on the weekends, and if we happened to be running errands in Waverly, we probably looked the part. But it was just a case of different station, same song. Mostly, he just isolated himself in his shop in the barn, working for hours on pet projects and only stopping to eat, also by himself in the barn. In the meantime, the would-be glorious new old house continued to atrophy and decay while we hunkered down in the makeshift plywood box with unfinished plumbing and a ladder for stairs. This was the listless washout from which my latest and biggest ideas for getting my dad back emerged. That watercolor book gave me my first big idea, which was to paint something so perfect and unique and amazing that it would take my father's breath away. My dad will pay attention if I'm perfect. If I'm perfect, he'll love us and stop hurting mom. It was this little kid logic, drastic and hopeful and filled with sad magic, that catapulted me into a summer-long cyclone of artistic activity. For some reason, I had the image in my head of a slightly wilted rose in a cherry Coke can sitting on the ledge of my open bedroom window. I don't know exactly why I conjured that vision, or why I believed so fervently that it was the absolute key to saving everything. Like Ray Stance stammers at the end of Ghostbusters, it just popped in there. I only knew I couldn't waste any time. I didn't even bother to ask my mom for this new set of Windsor & Newton watercolors I had been salivating over since I saw them in a display at Art World on a recent trip to the mall. They were too expensive, and the high stakes filled me with a pounding desperation bordering on recklessness. I had to get started. I immediately set to work with a cheap set of half-depleted Crayola paints with the plastic brush inside that I'd brought home from school. I decided I wouldn't come out of my room until the rose and the can were perfect. Over a couple of days, I sketched out and painted five or six versions of the image in my head all of which were met with wilting indifference from my father. That's not really how rose petals look, he responded laconically to one attempt I showed him. Maybe you should paint from an actual rose. Maybe you should plant some. 
I didn't say this out loud. My dad became a completely different person if you took that tone with him. Normally, his comment would have stopped me dead in my tracks, but this time it just made me angry, turning up the voltage inside me so that my whole body was buzzing. I went right back into my room and got down to work. I decided I wasn't going to show my dad any more paintings, but I wasn't going to stop either. And I didn't. By the end of the summer, I had generated hundreds of roses in cherry Coke cans depicted from every conceivable angle, painted on every imaginable size and shape of paper. In my furor, all of my caution and particularity had evaporated. I painted on everything. Napkins, typing sheets, construction paper, the backs of discarded blueprints. Anything available and within reach was commandeered for the cause. I painted until the Crayola tray had been plundered clean to the plastic. There weren't even remnant rings of paint particles left around the edges of the individual compartments. When there was no more paint, I switched to markers, and when I drained the nibs dry, I trickled water over their thinning output and scrubbed them to fullness with the worn-out brush that I'd used so savagely the hairs were permanently frayed into the shape of those wire brooms the chimney sweeps dance around with in Mary Poppins. Now, two days before the start of seventh grade, my room was a colossal red tsunami rising up over my bed and dresser and drawing desk, roses and cans and windowsills tangling, overlapping, their rich carmine and ruby watercolor splotches and blooms running and bleeding, blushing vermilion vines reticulating across the walls. You've been busy, my mom smiled as she came in. I brought you a grilled cheese. I'm trying to get the can right and I just can't, I thundered, my head down over yet another attempt. She set the plate down on my nightstand almost without a sound. How many times do you think you've painted it? I don't know, I mumbled, a lot. A brief airy space flecked with my scrubbing brush and birds twittering outside. Are you okay? I felt my hand tighten around my brush and then my whole arm locked, followed by my shoulders and neck and my ears started sizzling while my jaw hardened. My brush scrubbed faster and louder. Freddy? I swiveled around to face her, hot and hopeless. What's wrong? I keep painting this over and over and I can't get the can right, I croaked and I'm running out of time. What do you mean? I mean, I wanted to have this finished by the time we went back to school, and I can't get it to look right. They all look wonderful. They all look terrible, I erupted. None of them look right, and I just keep painting them, and they just keep looking terrible. Now I was looking right at her, my eyes saturated and stinging, my whole face thick with pressure from trying to hold in the wretched, messy collage of passion, confusion, and despair that had produced the sprawl of paper and paint. My mom lightly took both of my hands in hers. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yes, it does, I whispered, squeezing her hands and fighting the tears that were already rolling. Why, Freddy? I was shaking all over, and I hung my head and gave in, letting the rains come. How could I tell her why? 
How could I tell her my whole plan to get dad to love her again and save our family was to paint this perfect picture so that he'd see the good things he's missing and want to be with us instead of going away all the time. Even listening to the idea in my head, it sounded childish and hopeless, but it was the only thing I could think of to do, and I was doing it over and over and getting it wrong, and it looked worse and worse, and I kept failing, and our family was slipping away, and time was running out, and underneath all of it, I just wanted to scream everything back to a normal that I knew never even existed in the first place, and then fade out like the paint at the edge of the water. How could I tell her all that? when I couldn't even stop shaking from thinking about it. You have such a good heart, Mom breathed, squeezing my hands back. Could she hear what I was thinking? Such a good, tender heart, she continued, and you care so much. My inside roar started to die down just a little, and the shaking changed into halting, silent hiccups. I just wish I could make it look like what's in my head. I know you do, and you will, but look around you, Freddy. Look how good all of these paintings are already. We both gazed up and around the atrium of cans and roses my mad summer spiral had built, still holding hands. My eyes were wide open and wondering again, and my body was sinking back into calm, another lifeboat from my mother, the teacher. She moved to the wall by my desk and took a large piece of watercolor paper off the wall and studied it almost cradling it as she took it in. This one is probably my favorite. The composition is so good. Your colors really sparkle through in this one. Then it occurred to me that while my dad had spent the summer ignoring my paintings, my mom had been noticing each one as it went up on the wall, caring enough to really look at them and thinking about them enough that she had a favorite. She handed the painting to me and kissed me on the top of my head. Thanks for making me feel better, I said as she headed for the door. Sorry I cried so much. She was smiling as she turned around. We should all be able to cry as much as we need to. I got my second big idea accidentally when I was working with my dad out in the barn. I say working with, but it was really more of a conscripted labor situation because he never asked. He just callously commanded me to come out to the shop, barking the order over his shoulder while he was already halfway out the door. And I never really helped him with any of the actual work he was doing, which was mostly cutting down lumber for something he was building or repairing old cars and trucks. Instead, I just swept up sawdust with a giant old push broom. This was for the best because I was scared of the saws and terrible with tools. On top of that, I dreaded even being out there with my dad because I had the unyielding and irreconcilable feeling of being afraid of him and wanting to be close to him at the same time. Deep inside, I knew I was fundamentally not made of the same stuff that allowed my father to effortlessly wield power tools, drive nails into studs with a single hammer stroke, and build entire houses with his bare hands. I'd lost count of how many times he asked me to bring him some implement I'd never heard of or seen before, and then look at me with disgust when I handed him the wrong thing after five minutes of panicked rummaging. I felt like a pretender, dim and weak. But one Saturday morning in June, something astonishing had happened. I dragged myself into the barn early to find my dad smiling. 
He was thumbing through a box of old 45 RPM records and had several out on the top of his table saw in their original sleeves. He actually looked like he was enjoying himself. Freddy, come over here. You gotta see these, he coaxed. It seemed dubious, but if it would delay broom duty for even 15 minutes, I was game. I found these in my old storage locker upstairs. You ever heard of these guys? He waved one of the singles at me. The label in the center had a swirl of bright orange and yellow. My dad handed it to me with a care and reverence he almost never displayed. The Beach Boys, I read aloud. Be true to your school. We played this in the locker room after we won the state basketball championship, he glowed. Until that exact second, I never even knew my dad played basketball. Were they your favorite band? Yeah, I guess they were my favorites. I liked a lot of their car songs. They sang songs about cars? I queried. I was trying to make sense of boys on a beach singing songs about cars in school. The blue monochrome jacket with a photo of five guys in flannel shirts holding a surfboard together grinning like goons wasn't much help. They did songs about cars and surfing and having fun, he explained, looking genuinely wistful as he ran his fingers across a couple of other discs. Can we listen to them? I asked. I wasn't really excited to do that, but I was less excited to start sweeping. You'd have to go inside and use your mom's record player. I was about to ask him if I could, but held back, imagining this whole enchanted moment could turn sour pretty quickly if I said that. So I just stood there looking at him, looking down at the record, looking back at him, saying nothing. Why don't you go play it and see what you think? I could barely believe such encouraging and liberating words had escaped my father's lips. I stood right where I was, eyes wide, mouth open, wondering if he was for real, and also wondering if he was feeling okay. Here, he extended his arms. Take the whole box. Less than five minutes later, I was drowning myself in my dad's early Beach Boys discography. My mom showed me how to operate her record player, and I spent the next hour or so listening to songs that were indeed about cars and surfing and having fun. And they were great, but inside I felt giddy because my dad had unknowingly handed me what appeared to be a master key to unlocking his heretofore hermetically sealed exterior. If just looking at some old Beach Boys records could make my dad smile and produce the longest exchange of words we'd had that I could remember, what could listening to their music together do? My second big idea of the summer had taken shape. Having enshrined my dad's revelation as a pristine moral imperative, I tried to accumulate as many Beach Boys albums as I could as quickly as I could but I didn't know what to look for or where to go to get them. Our regular trips to the mall in Lincoln with my mother to kill time and take flight from the boredom of the farm began to include feverish and doomed searches for Beach Boys vinyl, until finally a kid named Ricky who worked at Tape World and was failing my mom's composition class informed us that nobody carried the Beach Boys on vinyl and showed us to the B section of rock where there were probably 20 cassette tapes to choose from. Why do you want to listen to the Beach Boys? Ricky sneered. He was wearing a Metallica shirt with a graveyard of crosses that said Master of Puppets. I really like their harmonies, I muttered. 
Ricky contorted his face into a pained grimace. Those guys are like my dad's age, he winced. They're like total butter. I scanned the vertical row of tapes, trying to make a decision quickly just from the titles so we could get out of there fast. Ricky was still standing by us, leaning in and frowning like I was handling radioactive sludge right there in his store. My mom just glared at him, with her chin jutted out like maybe she was contemplating sending him to the office for being such a moron. Patrick grabbed one of the tapes out and offered it up to me. What about this one, Freddy? The picture on the front was another goonish photo of the Beach Boys all leaning against each other back to back and smiling. It said surfing in garish yellow letters and had a cartoon convertible and palm tree with baby blue and pink squiggles scattered between them. Those guys are dweebs, Ricky scowled. I really wanted to punch him right in the cemetery. I like the colors in the palm tree, Patrick bubbled, touching the case. And what's with their hair? Ricky laughed. They look like they're wearing wigs. Hilarious, coming from the idiot who looked like he had stolen his hair from one of the guys in Metallica. Now I just felt like standing up for my brother to shut him up. We'll take this one, I growled and slapped it in his hand. Okay, dude, but it looks super lame. My mother had had enough. Are you trying to not sell tapes here in the middle of tape world? She fired off. What do you mean? Ricky sputtered with a dazed look like he was trying to comprehend a wall-sized mural of calculus. I mean, are you trying your best to not sell us this tape? You knew things were serious when my mom started spacing out the last few words of a sentence like that. Uh, Ricky was done for. Here's a 20. My mom produced the bill from her purse and held it up in front of Ricky's face. Her voice was slow and patient, like she was reading a picture book to a three-year-old. Why don't you take that back to the register and we'll get out of your hair? She emphasized the word hair just slightly and punctuated it with a quick, disdainful scan of Ricky's messy, tangled, ineptly feathered locks. You can keep the change, she smiled. Come on, boys. I loved watching mom switch over into exasperated teacher mode when someone was being a jerk. It made me feel safe, like I had someone on my side no matter what. And it was hilarious to watch total a-holes become shrinking babies when they realized they'd had no idea who they were dealing with. On the way back home, I bathed myself in a silent reverie in which I would produce the musical trophy for my dad and he and I would listen to the Beach Boys and share the musical experience and he would be overcome with love and everything would be healed. The only problem was that the cassette turned out to be a cobbled together package of B-sides, early recordings, and demo versions of the Beach Boys' first studio efforts, none of which were hits or familiar to my dad. The tape had titles like Luau, Karate, and Barbie. I wouldn't learn until a few years later that while these songs were indeed recorded by the Beach Boys, they were from the uneventful year before they'd signed to Capitol Records after the initial success of Surfin', their first single. A plodding demo version of that song was on the cassette too. The only thing on the tape that, to my dad's ear, resembled the Beach Boys was a recording of Surf and Safari that was not the version that went to number 14 in 1962. 
It had different lyrics and mentioned South Africa and putting on my faded blue jeans. When I played the cassette for him, he actually laughed at the amateurish production. Where'd you find this thing? He kept chuckling. I got it at Tape World, I entreated. They have tons of Beach Boys tapes. You might want to go back and get a real one. As my dad reacted dismissively to track after track of not the real Beach Boys, I felt the searing itchiness of the tops of my ears getting hot and red. My big idea had not only failed, but I was ashamed. I had squandered a rare shred of detail about who my father was and made him laugh at my attempt to get close. But just like the watercolors, I couldn't let this stop me. I had a family to save. For the rest of the summer, I continued to carefully and strategically ask my dad about the Beach Boys while amassing an arsenal of their music in secret. Anytime he would part with even the smallest shred of information regarding their music, I would hurl myself back onto the trail, convinced that these clues would eventually yield a musical roadmap to that part of my dad I'd experienced in the barn that day. Because he'd mentioned liking their car songs, I familiarized myself with every one I could find, including obscure ones like No Go Showboat and Custom Machine, even though I didn't understand any of the jargon and wasn't really interested in cars. This didn't concern me. My dad was a man who knew about cars, and maybe caring about these songs about cars by his favorite band would turn me into a man and make him care about me. One night around the 4th of July while we were driving out in the country, I Get Around came on the radio, and my dad did two things I'd never seen him do before. He turned up the radio, and he began singing along. My mom said she hadn't seen my dad do that in years. This clearly meant I Get Around was the undisputed queen mother of Beach Boys records, since it was the only track to date to evoke such an exuberant response from my father. I hunted down a copy of All Summer Long, the album it was on, and played it so much the rest of the month while I was painting the tape wore out. And then something unexpected happened in that mad plunge there in my room. The sound and the colors began to combine. As my non-stop painting intermingled with the continuous stream of Beach Boys music in the background, something shifted and I wasn't sure if it was in my ears, or in my mind, or both. The elements of the music seemed to separate and spread out around the room like all the papers on my walls, still hanging together but with enough space between them that I could almost move through them and encounter each harmony and each melodic bass line on its own. It almost felt like I was wearing the music, an artist's smock knitted together by reverberating wet electric guitars and stacked vocals in stereo. Each new infusion of paint to water blossomed on the paper in perfect time with the pulsing and aching of Don't Worry Baby, the high parts winding out of my tape player in euphoric streams. Brian Wilson's voice sounded like the watercolors looked, joyous and melancholy all at the same time. I imagined his ascending falsetto in the warmth of the sun was a wounded bird soaring steadfastly in spite of its pain, his singing the plaintive sigh of a soul crying with enough edge left over to cut through the resistance of wind and atmosphere and take its rightful place bathing in sunlight above a ceiling of clouds. 
In this now unstoppable coalescing of paint and chords, I could suddenly hear color and see sound all at once, as though the thin membrane separating my senses had disappeared. Little by little, as August advanced and the pace of my painting picked up, I began to care less and less about what my dad thought of the music. I stopped listening to the surfing and car songs altogether because I couldn't get past the cornball machismo of the lyrics. I preferred the aching longing of the mid-tempo ballads. Listening to the washes of harmonies and soft shuffling percussion and Wilson's falsetto helped me keep churning out roses and Coke cans at a prodigious clip. What really pushed it over the edge was the Beach Boys Today, a tape I got the day after RJ's party that not only had no surfing or car songs, but was completely devoid of songs having anything to do with summer at all. The songs it did have were mostly about relationships, with titles like Please Let Me Wonder, She Knows Me Too Well, and I'm So Young, a slow song about two people who are desperate to be married but aren't old enough, and the pain of waiting is killing them. But there was a song called When I Grow Up to Be a Man that actually haunted me with its harpsichords and minor harmonies revealing the worries and fears of a boy as he turns into an adult. As I painted to it, everything seemed to run together and tumble down into the end of the summer. I thought about the eagle girls dancing in the low lights of the garage at the party and about all the unsolved mysteries surrounding them. I thought about the flickering glow of my mother and the rising darkness in my father, and the painting I kept repeating eternally. And I thought maybe this song would somehow help me to pool them all into a brilliant, borderless masterpiece that I'd deliver in this last narrow golden hour. The last day before school started, Patrick and I were out in the barn again, helping my dad. Over the weekend, he had made an unprecedented leap into modern times and purchased a slim black Sanyo boombox to use during work. Normally, he listened to AM talk radio on this ancient bedside clock unit that was encrusted in several years' worth of small wood particles spewed from the saws. You had to fully extend the antenna and position it precisely and perfectly just to transform all the static into the mildly garbled yet intelligible thrum of the host's droning voices that was the unbroken backdrop for these tours of duty in the barn. But the old clock radio's time had come, so my dad lit it on fire in the burn bin, melting it into a foul-smelling mass of vulcanized rubbish and setting the brand new Sanyo in its place. Despite its diminutive size, he insisted on calling it a ghetto blaster, he thought that was hilarious. The only thing I cared about was that the Ghetto Blaster had a double tape deck. As we were getting started, I slipped my completely rewound copy of the Beach Boys Today into the A deck and pressed play. I didn't ask for permission, but we had a lot to do and my dad didn't seem to notice. And he didn't seem to mind either. Through the first three tracks, his disposition remained relatively ardent and cheerful as he ran planks over the table saw, and Patrick and I dutifully deposited the dross into a kindling pile. But when the opening chorus of When I Grow Up To Be A Man rang out of the radio and splashed through the great long corridor of the barn, my dad surprised us. 
He suddenly turned the saw off and walked over to his new ghetto blaster. Hey, I remember this song, he beamed. This is a great one. He closed his eyes and started bobbing his head as the music churned. Will I dig the same things that turned me on as a kid? Will I look back and say that I wish I hadn't done what I did? Where did you find this thing? He asked me. It's from the album The Beach Boys Today, I answered. I just got it last week. Although my heart was racing and I was afraid my dad would be able to hear its pining thuds through my sweatshirt, I walked as calmly as I could over to the old wood desk where I had laid the cassette case and grabbed it. I don't know if he noticed how much my hand was shaking as I offered him the case, but it was obvious enough to me that I honestly wondered if my entire nervous system was short-circuiting. My dad held the case and looked at the album cover while he listened, still grooving. Will my kids be proud or think their old man's really a square? I really like their harmonies, I sheepishly volunteered, my ears getting hot and itchy. Yeah, their harmonies were really something else, my dad agreed. I was about to cry. I just hoped he would keep examining the cover and not look up to see my eyes flooded with tears and stinging from all the dust and salt. Well, I'm young and free, but how will it be when I grow up to be a man? What will I be when I grow up to be a man? As the song launched into the ending, the background harmonies tolling the years upward from 22 to 30 and then fading out, Dad handed the case back to me. Let's lay into this stuff and knock off early for lunch, he suggested, and with an effortless gesture toward the radio, said, You can leave that on if you want. After lunch, Patrick and I drifted out of the house and into our vast front yard to play catch. The farm's grass, a four-acre carpet of drying green bristles fading into pale straw beneath the feverous heat, stretched west down the hill to the gravel road that separated us from the endless parched fields beyond. The ever-present locusts were already throating a menacing background chorus, the hiss swelling every second. The last remnants of summer sat right on the cusp of a prairie fire, each day waiting until the afternoon to decide if it would acquiesce and welcome a cooling breeze or roar ahead and burn. It wasn't even one o'clock and the ball had only hit our gloves once or twice before the sticky, motionless air withered our resolve. We headed back into the house for water. My mother would have normally handed us a couple of glasses, but when we got inside, she was lying on her back on the floor, pinned there by my father who was straddling her with one hand on her throat and the other holding my baseball bat. Stop. Stop. He raised the bat with his chiseled right arm, his bicep bulging out from underneath his white undershirt. It was the exact same drawback, motion, and alignment that he used to propel his hammer into a nail head when he was framing a house. I had seen it probably a thousand times before, my dad driving his hammer right into the head. I had never seen him miss. Stop. Was my mom screaming? Stop. Stop. Why can't I hear her crying? I couldn't cut through the booming silence the vacuum of voices being sucked away as my dad's arm reached its highest and tautest position, almost directly behind his head. Stop. 
stop. My bat smashed into the hardwood floor right by the side of my mom's head. The splintering crack, a gunshot snare ripping through the quiet of the country and ushering in a three-part stack of background screaming, crying, wailing from the terrified vocalists nailed to the floor. Three more lethal cracks, all just centimeters from my mom's ear. And then he stopped. My dad rose up and flipped my bat away into the living room like it was some useless power tool that didn't work right. His body had the same swagger and swell as when you hit a home run or make a batter look foolish with a fastball, a combination of proud and puffed up and disgusted all at once. He swept by Patrick and me and out the front door. He was halfway back to the shop and the barn before we even started moving towards my mom. Before we could reach her, my mother turned over and gingerly raised herself up on all fours, her sun-kissed hair falling in thick sheaves in front of her face. Patrick and I were each touching one of her shoulders, but she got up and stood without any assistance, serenely folding her messy tendrils back up over her forehead and behind her ear, reintroducing blue-gray eyes that looked cerulean in the redness of her face. It was the first time I knew she was scared. She mustered the strength to raise her arms enough that my brother and I could settle under them. Even stripped of every protection available to herself, her instinct to protect us was irreducible. How about I get you boys a glass of water, she said. Less than 24 hours later, I was in seventh grade. So she sits in silence thinking sadly
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media.